Blog Talk Radio. Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show, and we're continuing with the theme that we've been developing for quite some time, that of sustainability on our planet, in our country, on our planet, and the ways and means by which to achieve this. It sounds like doesn't it? I know. I know. However, it is being made more day, and I have reported with uh, a number of stories of people who are doing awesome things across the planet to bring this reality about stuff I've written on the Huffington Post also highlights some of the ways in which this can happen. And today we are continuing the theme and the story with a very special man, the co-founder of the Solutions Project, Mark Jacobson, who we will get to in just a moment. But first, let me just read a little bit to you about the original making um, formation of the Solutions Project, embedded in it, true a solution to make in very terms, and time. In June 2011, a scientist, an actor, found a table talking about the team and an important realization for them to be against They needed to be solution. Marco Craven, Josh Fox created the subject. Our mission is the power of science and to 100% clean, renewable. So it is a combination of good science and smart that can be about. Our guest, as I mentioned, is a uh, director of the Atmosphere Energy Program and professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. Hello. The Institute Hello. for the Environment and Energy. 
Hello? Mark Jacobson. Mark. Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Hi, you can hear me. Yes. Good, good. I know it might be a little staticky, for which I am I'm greatly sorry. However, I'm in the boondocks of Texas right now, and uh, we're having a storm. So even though I have my engineering window open and I hear you, uh, I'd like you to take over here and share with us what the solution project is. Sure. Um, yeah, so we uh, started... But you can't hear me. Can you not? Yes, I can hear you. And okay, can good. You hear me? I can hear you. Most important. Yeah. Um, so we Please. started a, a three years ago, we started to um, develop these uh, energy plans. Well, we first uh, we got a group together of business leaders and uh, scientists and cultu- cultural leaders. And we'd been developing at Stanford University these science-based plans to change the energy infrastructure of states and countries to clean and renewable energy infrastructures. Uh, by that, I mean uh, converting – well, we first started with a world plan in 2009 uh, to convert the entire world to wind, water, and solar power. We wanted to see, is this technically and economically feasible? In other words, do we have enough resources, raw resources of wind power and solar power uh, how many devices of everything would we need, uh, and how much land area would that take? What would the cost be? What would the materials be? Requ- what requ- materials would be required? And we just did this as a thought analysis at first, looking at the world scale, and found that indeed it was technically and economically. Sorry, I'm. Did, were you able to hear that? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, said uh, I'm having trouble hearing you now, but I, I hopefully you can hear me. You said feasible. Please continue, Mark. Oh, continue. Yeah, okay. So we um, developed this world plan that, uh, and we're looking at transforming the infrastructure for all purposes. That's electricity, transportation, heating and cooling, and industry. And uh, so we we first uh, determined, well, in the future, uh, in 2030 and 2050, how much energy would we need um, from conventional fuels? And then we did a conversion of all that energy to um, electricity. Instead of, for example, driving gasoline cars, we'd have electric cars. Um, instead of uh, natural gas heaters and oil heaters, uh, we'd have air source and ground source heat pumps, which run on electricity. And for for all purposes, in fact, we converted everything to electricity, and then we determined how much electricity we would need. And the first thing we found out is that if we do convert everything to electricity, we get a reduction of power demand uh, by about, uh, on a worldwide scale, about 32% uh, just by converting from combustion to electricity. Now, we then determine, well, how much end-use power, I mean, how many um, different wind turbines, how many solar panels, uh, how many geothermal plants, how many hydroelectric plants would we need uh, to power the world entirely with clean, renewable energy for all purposes? And we found that it was technically feasible to do this uh, with not that many number of devices. So, for example, we could power half the world for all purposes uh, with 
with wind and maybe 40% with solar, and that would require about 4 million large wind turbines um, for just to, to power the entire half the entire world for all purposes. Uh, and then, well, we eventually came down scale to look at the United States, and that's when the Solutions Project really started. Um, we really we met um, with Mark Ruffalo and Marco Craples and Josh Fox, um, uh, who helped start the Solutions Project. Uh, we met in San Francisco and and decided to work on a plan for New York State. So we developed an energy plan for New York State, would be which would be to repower the entire state of New York for all purposes with clean, renewable uh, energy. And, Wonderful. And when we did that, um, we ended up writing a paper on it and published it. Uh, and th then that got when, us going. When did you do this? Uh, this was finished, well, it was over the last, Basically, since 2011, middle of 2011, we started, but we got the, we published the paper in the beginning of 2013, and that really led though to the energy plans for other states. So we then did one for California and Washington State, but then we actually have done now 50 plans for 50 states. So anybody Indeed. can actually go to thesolutionsproject.org and click on the and just and look right as you. It, as you go to that website, it comes up a map that you can click on any state and look at a potential state energy plan for that state. Again, it's solutionsproject.org, thesolutionsproject.org. And uh, but that so we're right at the, that state. Well, right now we're at the stage where we've developed plans for all 50 U.S. states, and we're trying to fill in more details of each of these plans and engaging businesses and policymakers uh, to try to. Uh, have these plans implemented, and eventually we'll and be doing what, plans for individual let's, countries. Let's, let's just go. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, it's a little better. Very good. Thank you. Uh, just to just go back a little bit. First of all, this is an awesomely ambitious and wonderfully um, envisioned plan. Looking at the world and then coming back more locally. And we be able to use our own country as a template for this to happen. Let's just review the uh, renewable energy that you uh, sources. Thermal is uh, hydro hydropower part of it. Well, hydro is part of it only to the extent that we use existing hydroelectric power. Uh, we don't have plans to increase uh, number, the number of dams, for example. However, existing hydro can be made more efficient. Sure. Uh, and so, but because we realize that people don't really want to build dams, and in fact, it, a lot of people want to tear down existing dams. So, ultimately, the reason yeah. the, the reason the hydro is used initially, existing hydro, is because it's such a good load balancer. When you have a lot of wind and solar which are variable and intermittent. In other words, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. It turns sure. out when you combine wind and solar, then you they complement each other very well in nature. And so when the wind is not blowing, the sun is usually shining during the day and vice versa. But there's still going to be gaps between that supply and energy demand. And hydro can be turned on and off instantaneously, effectively, to fill in those gaps. And so yeah, where it exists, exactly. it's very valuable in that respect. And it doesn't actually uh, 
pollute the climate or air, doesn't cause air pollution. And exactly. our, part of our goal is to solve air pollution problems uh, because in the United States, there are about 60,000 people die prematurely each year from air pollution. And worldwide, it's between 3 and 7 million people prematurely mm. each year. My so Lord. we're trying to address that problem as well as global warming and also energy price stability because we believe that yes, converting exactly. to wind, water, and solar will stabilize energy prices as well as uh, create jobs and eliminate global warming and air pollution problems. Sure. Well, I'd like to say that uh, just in light of hydropower, because I happen to be working on a few hydropower uh, projects right now, and uh, it's um, not only about damming at all. There's technologies uh, that I'm aware of that uh, we're just, just beginning to uh in uh, in Latin America and in Africa, and there are numerous people interested in the United States, including interestingly uh, some of the major coal companies. Curiously, you wouldn't think it, but it's happening. But it's not requiring damming at all. You don't need a dam whatsoever, and it basically is a technology that rolls off a trailer off the back of a of a car into the water like launching a boat. It's that simple. I'll talk to you about that another time. But I just wanted to say that the current, isn't it true, of water flowing, be it in a river, or then it gets even more so in an ocean, but even in a river, has more consistency than wind or solar, even though, as you're saying, and we all know, uh, those are wholly needed. Yeah, um, so you may be referring to run of the river hydro, and not this exactly. is definitely something. Well, in um, in either case, there's there is this thing called run of the river hydro that's um, where you don't put up a dam, but you you let the river to flow and you extract the energy from it. And that's yes, very useful. That's right. The that's the right. only thing is that um, it's the scaling, the actual total amount of energy you can extract from that versus a large scale dam. Um, so it's good for small projects and local communities, and so it's yes. definitely useful. It's at the scales we're talking about. Um, yes. Oh, I understand. Not... Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Sure. So you, how do you construct um, the engineering plan and the time frame? I find that so interesting. Folks, if you go to, while you're listening, the solutions, you will see what, Professor Mark Jacobson is speaking of, there's a map of the United States, and if you put the cursor um, on top of any one, it will show you what the uh, breakdown would be per renewable energy modality. And then, Mark, you go a step further and state by when, as in a time frame, something politicians just don't like, how long it would actually take to implement this if it was full force ahead, or maybe you can comment on that. Yeah, well, uh, it's well. There's there's what's theoretical. It's theoretically to po- it's possible to convert the entire energy infrastructure of the U.S. or any other country by 2030. Um, however, we realize that it's probably not practical politically or socially to do that. But we do set the goal of by 2050, we would have 100% conversion for all purposes. And again, that's electricity, transportation, heating and cooling, and industry. And the way if you had, is, if you had co-op, 
Korea fully. And money wasn't the issue because all we would have to divert it from a number of other sources that are wasting our money uh, in the federal budget. Uh, if you were to actually start putting a shovel into the ground on July 4th, I think that would be nice and symbolic. What time frame are we looking at? You had the man to um, uh, fade out the reliance on the um, fossil um, input as the time frame, let's say, for New York State and to live there, if you don't mind. Sorry, well, we would expect it by 2020, all new sources of electricity and transportation, heating, cooling industry would be wind, water, and solar. So let's say you need a, you have new demand, you need a new car, it would be an electric car. If you need a new uh, gas heater, it'd be an air source heat pump or something like that. Um, And also, when you have when you have to replace something like an existing uh, coal plant. Retires, then you replace it with something clean like wind or solar. Uh, such that, and then you have aggressive policy measures put in place, and each state would have, and country would have uh, different policy measures and different incentives. But uh, some of them would be very aggressive to try to phase out retirements of existing plants and transportation. And such that by 2030, we'd expect that 80% to 85% of the energy infrastructure for all purposes would have been converted. And then we'd get the remaining plants, such as natural gas plants that are built in the last few years, uh, retiring by the 2030 to 2050 timeframe, such that by 2050, everything is uh, converted. That's um, Now, I'd like to know, however, from the point of view of a carbon footprint and the uh, CO2 levels uh, for one, uh, and what we're looking about 400 or so parts per million uh, that we know so well through the work of Kibben and the Earthwatch project. I'm sorry, static. Yeah, the uh, sound is fading out, so I'm not sure exactly what the question is. But I think I guess it, I think it was I think it was, you know, how fast would we reduce the carbon levels in the atmosphere? And the background levels before industrialization were about 280 parts per million volume of carbon dioxide, and right now they're about 400 parts per million. So we'd try to reduce 120 parts per million. Now, under our plan, if the world actually followed this plan of going to zero emissions, anthropogenic emissions by 2050, then uh, we would start to see, well, we're going to see still an increase of CO2, even if we if we set emissions to zero today, uh, we would still see um, the, the concentrations of CO2 uh, in the atmosphere uh, they would stay steady for quite a while because uh, because it, the, the uh, pollutants uh, CO2 in the atmosphere has a lifetime of on the order of 50 to 60 years, and that's called the e-folding lifetime. So after 50 or 60 years, you go down to about 38% the initial value. So if we're trying to eliminate 
120 uh, parts per million volume of CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, after 50 to 60 years, then we'd get a reduction of, a, of about 62% you know, of that. Um, so we could, it's going to, but we'd have to go down to zero emissions you know, immediately to start seeing an impact. But because we're going to not going to go down to zero emissions, we'll be increasing. We'll still be increasing the CO2 in the atmosphere for a while. Yes, and indeed. That before it comes down eventually. Sure. I know you for karma or We're not going anyway. So is of course. Um, Past a certain tipping point, has a certain amount of damage has been done is not reversible. Um, I think you're asking again. That's breaking up quite a bit. So I'm not yeah. sure the exact question. But there's a tipping point in there. So I think I think the question yeah. relates to whether there's. We, go ahead. I think the question relates to you know whether we're at risk of reaching a tipping point. So in the next 20 years. Well, I'd say between 10 and 30 years, it's very possible that the Arctic sea ice may disappear entirely if nothing is done, or even if something is done but it's not enough, it's, it'll probably disappear entirely. And that, there is this risk of a tipping point of climate where you just get this rap, more rapid acceleration of, of temperature. The other main tipping point problem is that about half of all global warming that's in the system right now is being is being hidden or masked by air pollution particles that are reflective. And so as we clean up air pollution, which we want to do because air pollution causes about three to seven million deaths per year prematurely worldwide, uh, we're going to unmask hidden warming that's occurring. So mm -hmm. we actually will probably, the temper, even as we, as we eliminate the pollutants and sources of, of fossil fuels, uh, we're probably first going to see well cleaner air in terms of air pollution. People, fewer people will die each year, but temperatures will probably go up still for a while. Um, and then there are probably some tipping points that will accelerate some of this warming. Uh, but if we don't do anything, you know, these tipping points, things are going to get even worse. So we, I think just my own opinion about this, and having studied climate science quite a bit, is yes. you will get these tipping points and you'll get higher temperatures Things are eventually reversible. The only question is, and I can't answer that, when will they really reverse themselves? When Can, can you reverse um, the or, or are you just going to reach a new equilibrium state? And it depends on so many factors, it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. But I do know that we have to act immediately. Um, if we don't act immediately, things are going to be worse than if we didn't act immediately. Yeah. So it's really important, whatever we do, is that we act quickly and uh, we'll have to hope for the best whether tipping points are reached or not and whether they are reversible or not. Um, but yes. we will definitely reduce death rates and we will uh, stabilize long-term temperatures. Um, intermediate term, it's unclear, though. Oh, I like the sound of that. You are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin, uh, interviewing Mark Jacobson, Professor Mark Jacobson of Stanford, who is responsible for a really uh, powerful project called the project.org in any state in the union.
and clean renewable energy. It's an awesome project that he has put together with Fox, the filmmaker, Gasland, and Mark Ruffalo, the actor and activist, and Craples, who I'm not but he's obviously um, uh, uh, I'm very glad for that. But you know, I you you actually optimistic, Mark, and I see Letterman and others uh, speaking your truth, and I am. I I wish I could say I am as optimistic because what I was saying before is it is my understanding we've actually already passed certain um, critical moments. And some tipping points have already been in the past so that we will never actually return to equilibrium the way we were. Yeah, um, I'm, yeah I'm more optimistic than that. I mean, climate and historically, if you look back over the history of the Earth, temperatures have been much higher than they have been today. It's just the difference today is the rate of change of temperature in the presence of 7 billion people on the Earth. Yes. So, like in like a hundred million years ago, there was no ice on the Earth at all, and, and there's temperatures were much warmer. Uh, but nobody lived back then. So the problem we have is that the temperature, the rate of change of temperature today is much higher than any time in history. And so, when you have such rapid changes in with seven billion plus people on the Earth, uh, you risk lots of things like uh, famine and you know, starvation. As a result, well, famine and starvation, and uh, malnutrition. Yeah, malnutrition, increased hurricane risk, increased uh, severe storminess, uh, influenza, malaria, uh, shifting of agriculture, increased air pollution, uh, higher sea levels. If all the water and all the ice caps uh, melt, then with the uh, that'll raise the sea level about up to 70 meters, and that'll cover 7% of all land worldwide, and most people live near the coast. So this yes. could cause significant displacement of, of communities. Um, there's ocean acidification is another impact. Uh, there are um, many you know, costly impacts that will occur with so many people on the Earth. Now, if nobody lived on the Earth, then you know, we'd this is the main problem. But um, I to bring the conversation. But the Earth has recovered in the past from high temperatures. So, but it will yeah. take a while. Yeah. Um, this is the problem, and it's only. It's. I think there's. Uh, you know, a lot of things do respond because the you know the lifetime of CO2, as I mentioned, is the actual data constrained lifetime. If you actually look at data of emissions rates and the actual concentration of the atmosphere, you can back calculate that carbon dioxide lives about you know, between 50 and 60 years uh, right. before it gets decreased by about 62%. You know, and we, spend a, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, CO2, but we know that methane release dwarfs the effect of CO2. You mentioned the polar ice cap that uh, was recently brought to my attention that there was a massive in ice in Antarctica, which at a certain point in time, which is not too distant from now, it could, because of 
So thermal activity actually helped to liberate huge plumes of methane into the atmosphere, as has already happened, noted by Russian scientists in Siberia. Yeah, so if you look at what's causing... ...of methane to CO2. Well, if we look at what's causing global warming today, it's about 42 to 44% CO2. Uh, the second leading cause of global warming is black carbon, which is the main component of soot, which is a particulate matter, so it causes it's part of pollution that kills people, and that's about on the order of 17 to 20 percent. Methane is about is third, with about 15 to 16 percent of the warming. And then you have ozone, and you have uh, chlorofluorocarbons, nitrous oxide, a little bit of carbon monoxide, as well, but. So mm-hmm. methane, though, it's on the short time frame, on the 20-year time frame, it, it causes about uh, 85 to 105 times more warming per unit mass than carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Methane, mix, methane mixing ratios, though, in the atmosphere are on the order of uh, 1.8 parts per million, whereas carbon dioxide are about 400. So there's a lot more carbon dioxide than methane. And as you go out to longer periods of time, Even. methane... Has has a less has about a 25 to 30 times more warming than CO2, but what that means though is, well, we're really concerned about the short time frame that, because that's when the Arctic yes. ice will disappear and the methane releases from uh, deep from the deep ocean, the methane hydrates from below the water uh, can come out, and so the main sources of methane are like rice paddies and cattle feedlots and termite mounds, but also an increasing source is natural gas use, uh, mm-hmm. leaks from natural gas mining and u- operations and use in cities and in the, along pipelines and the drilling itself. And that's mm-hmm. being enhanced by what's called hydrofracking or fracking of for natural gas because of all the yes. leaks that are associated with it. And gas fracking also causes a lot of black carbon emissions because there's a lot of burning of uh, excess gas and that burning produces this black smoke that's black carbon. So if you look at North Dakota, for example, there's huge amounts of um, flaring going on in these gas wells and other wells uh, that creates a huge amount of black carbon that goes to the Arctic. So the black carbon and methane from the natural gas is really contributing a lot to the Arctic sea ice loss, and that's a big danger. And the positive feedback of methane, uh, more methane coming out from not only under the sea ice, but also under Siberian peat bogs, and other places, uh, permafrost, where there's a lot of methane stored. Now, yes. having said that, so there is this positive feedback, but the question is, what's the magnitude? And is because if you actually look at the methane levels in the atmosphere, um, they were increasing gradually from the 18, late 1800s to late 1900s, up to the early 2000s. Then there was about a five to ten year period where they kind of stayed stagnant. Now they're increasing again. Um, so they're not like exploding, but they're increasing. So there's this, so it's it's um, there's this concern because it's so mm-hmm. powerful, the greenhouse gas. Um, uh, but it is depends if we if we can actually control everything else, then we'll we can also slow. I think the methane, but um, there's a risk if we do have this runaway warming. If, if we do not control the emissions, then definitely there could be an explosion of methane. I'm kind of more optimistic that we can control the explosion of methane if we can actually, in the next 10 years, slow you know, the emissions of everything else. 
Um, but if we don't, then then I'd really start worrying about these potential methane. I, I I I'm going to start bowing in your direction at Palo Alto, Mark, because I really like what you're saying, and I I am myself also working diligently on helping to uh, convert us in my ways to renewable resources away from the fossil fuel ones. Um, at the same time, I, yeah, I I think that there is an aspect of nature, and I'm going to let everyone know, radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on at 6 p.m. and family about the kinds of conversations we have here all about creating a better world on so many different levels. And we're focusing especially these days on the environment because I feel that essential. And if that conversation isn't, all the others are sort of uh, put uh, away. <laughs> they don't get a place. You can get our newsletter, www.abetterworld.tv, and uh, become part of the world family. Mark Jacobson, I'm so glad that you're on with me today. I'd like to ask you, uh, on one hand, we talk about anthropogenic uh, sources of climate change. And then again, there is a very strong case, and I'm not talking about simply made by religious fundamentalists or even Republicans, that cultural cycles, as you even said earlier, of of our planet for hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. So what extent do you see what is going on currently from methane from to view? Uh, sorry, I think that broke up, so I didn't quite get the full question. Uh, I asked about, about natural what, cycles. Yeah, the natural cycles. There and we have anthropogenic sources of of climate change through greenhouse gases. But then there are the natural cycles. How would you say those two relate to each other here? What is the proportion, uh, one to the other? Well, yeah, the proportion is, well, of the total warming that has occurred to date of the planet, which is uh, between point, 0 0.8 and 0 0.9 degrees Celsius, which is over 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit, um, of that warming about less than, I would say less than 0.1, in fact, 0.05 degrees or less is from any natural variation, and the rest is anthropogenic. So, you know, we're talking um, over 90% anthropogenic, even 95%. Oh. And, yeah, and if you look at, in fact, if you look at the sunspots, some people will say, well, it's there's a sunspot cycles are responsible for warming, but actually, yes. uh, if you actually look at sunspot data, there's, has been a decline of sunspot activity in the last um, uh, in the last uh, 30 years, and it's been steadier declining. It's There's no actual increase. increase. And also, if you were, if in the last if were sunspots, last 30 years, in the last, if we so if we're looking okay. at recent warming trends from the, because most of this increase of temperatures, uh, increases of temperatures that have been observed are staggeringly increasing in the last 30 years, but during that period, sunspots have actually been declining or staying steady. 
And in fact, if the sunspots were responsible for global warming, then we would expect to see a warming of the stratosphere, which is uh, anywhere from 10 to 50 kilometers up up above the ground. Mm -hmm. And the stratosphere is where the ozone layer is. But when you have global warming, you warm the surface and you cool the stratosphere. And the reason reason that you warm the surface and cool the stratosphere is you have greenhouse gases which trap heat that is emitted from the surface of the Earth, preventing it from getting to the stratosphere where that heat would otherwise warm the stratosphere. So by trapping the heat near the surface with the greenhouse gases, you cool the stratosphere, and that's observed in the data. If sunspots were increasing and and causing warming of the surface, you would expect a corresponding warming of the stratosphere because ozone in the stratosphere would absorb that sunlight, but you don't see that. So there's yes. uh, there's almost no chance that sunspots are causing this problem. I understand. It's a very interesting way of looking at it, and I I appreciate it. Um, you you set out on beauty, and I very much commend you on that. You and your uh, partners. Uh, what? How would you describe your reception in socially culturally as well? As Politically, most in this case at this moment. <laughs> Sorry, I really missed that question. <laughs> the line is just really bad. Started with New York State. Started with New York State. Did you meet with Governor Cuomo? Did you have a chance to sit down oh. and actually meet with him? Uh, no, we have not met with Governor Cuomo. We have um, communicated with some of the staff, and he has been aware of our plan. He's personally read it, and he actually has actually um, we made recommendations to what New York could do, and it seemed like he actually was amenable to some of these recommendations because in January of this year he had the state of the state address and announced mm-hmm. I think it was a billion or a billion and a half dollars for solar roofs, um, another billion or billion and a half for a green bank and ten thousand charging stations, which are all uh, items that we pushing for in terms of um, proposed um, policy options or not well we don't really propose poly option, policy options we give a list of possible policy measures and so these were among them um, that and he seemed to implement them which is good but he hasn't embraced our plan at this point um, uh, and we have and we'd like to meet with him and other governors as well Sorry, I can't hear you at all. At this oh, point. you haven't. The other states, do you have, I mean, it seems that if you have soldiers in each of the respective states, you might be able to um, get further uh, traction on this. Yeah, well, we are working on... you hear me? On, yeah, I heard that. We are working effectively in all 50 states. We do have... The Solutions Project has been engaging people in different states, uh, in different levels, and we are also engaging with other non-governmental organizations who already uh, do work in each state. And, well, we are trying to figure out our strategy right now in terms of, I mean, because we really, we think of ourselves as doing science and then educating the public about the science and policymakers uh, and also engaging in businesses who are, be interested in, in, for example, like Walmart is a company that's decided to go 100% renewable energy. So this would be a, this is a 
business that is great to engage and to take to a different state and say, look, you know, they're interested in trying to solve this problem. Um, you know, what, what can they? How can they invest in your state to uh, uh, not only make their own company clean, but also to create jobs in your state? So there's a synergy um, where we're trying to facilitate this transition by educating people about these science plans and providing information that would not otherwise be available, and also trying to match people together with and businesses together with um, for the most benefit of the state or country. Indeed. How about internationally? Have you gotten more or less reception from uh, international uh, sources? Well, internationally, so we, we the first thing we did was built a global plan, um, and but we really need to develop individual plans for different countries, and we've started on that, although we haven't gotten very far along. Uh, so the goal would be to develop individual plans for different countries, and then we would uh, do the same thing, engage policymakers and the public in these countries. So th there are a lot of people from other countries who have asked us to develop plans and who have expressed interest, but we don't have specific plans for specific countries outside the U.S. so far. Um, just each one takes uh, yeah. time to do. Sorry, I can't hear you at this point. Yeah, I don't I don't hear I can't hear anything actually. I think the signal is completely lost. Hello?
Hello, uh, Mitchell Rubin. I am so sorry that uh, we had been the store where I presently am, and uh, I'm guest Mark Jensen of the Films Project. We didn't. Oh, my apologies, Mark Jacobs, and I'll have you back on another time in a more stable situation uh, to do the show. Yeah, I'm able to gather implementing your uh, brilliant plan here. So thank you for your work, and I'll be contacting you very soon. Again, I know that the sound is a little and staticky and intermittent. And my apologies, this is what we have. Uh, uh, modern as it may be. So thank you all for joining us. 